Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on this episode is Amitav Ghosh. He's not a climate scientist, per se, but his thinking and writing on climate in the last few years have been so profound and important, and I really appreciate the opportunity to have him on. Just a little biography here, since we didn't really talk about Amitav's life in the conversation itself, so I'm just going to quote a few things from the biography on his webpage. Amitav Ghosh was born in Calcutta and grew up in India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. He studied in Delhi, Oxford, and Alexandria, and is the author of The Circle of Reason, The Shadow Lines, In an Antique Land, Dancing in Cambodia, The Calcutta Chromosome, The Glass Palace, The Hungry Tide, and the Ibis Trilogy, consisting of Sea of Poppies, River of Smoke, and Flood of Fire. His next to most recent book, The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable, a work of nonfiction, appeared in 2016 and was given the inaugural Utah Award for the Environmental Humanities in 2018, and also in 2018, the Nanpith Award, India's highest literary honor, was conferred on Amitav Ghosh. He was the first English-language writer to receive the award, and in 2019, Foreign Policy magazine named him one of the most important global thinkers of the preceding decade. And that's just a few of the many awards and honors given to Amitav. I don't normally read any of those, but um, since we didn't get into it in the interview, I thought I'd just give you a sense of who you're going to be listening to. I first met Amitav about four and a half years ago when my book Storm Surge had come out the year before and Amitav had read it as part of the research for The Great Derangement, which he was working on at that time. And he wrote to me asking for advice about some questions in climate science and tropical cyclones and so on. And we met and talked and became friends. And those conversations have ended up influencing my actual scientific research, although I won't talk about that now, maybe another time. But more relevant to today, it's how I was able to get Amitav to record this conversation with me, and I'm so happy that he did. Amitav's most recent book, Gun Island, a novel, appeared in the fall of 2019, and we spoke about it in the summer of 2019. As the book jacket says, Brilliantly weaving Bengali folklore with the power of the elements in a time of planetary crisis, it's the story of creeping displacement and unstoppable transition, end quote. So if you couldn't tell from that, it's a book with a climate theme, among many others. And you can read it after listening to the interview. I don't think there are any spoilers in here. Okay, that's enough. Let's hear my conversation with Amitav Ghosh. Uh, the part I was kind of curious about that I never uh, have managed to ask you about before is your career as an academic. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, my career as an academic was very short, <laughs> shall we say. I mean, after I finished my PhD, I um, spent like uh, six years uh, in India, you know, working at uh, basically Delhi University in, yeah. uh, you know, as a very entry-level kind of uh, teacher. Um, and then I, uh, then I, um, I was invited to come to the U.S. to uh, University of Virginia uh. Uh, as a visiting professor for, you know, a year. Yeah. So, I, you know, I did that. But, you know, I've taught on and off in the sense of, um, you know, in the sense of um, doing the occasional course. Or, yes. You, know? you um, mean since being primarily a writer? Yeah. Yeah. So I did have, a, I mean, at one point, uh, roundabout, I think it was 2000 or 1999, 
a Queens College in Queens uh, gave me a, a, a distinguished professorship, which was tenured. Wow. But I realized that it really just didn't suit me. So did you do it for a while? I did it for a couple of years. Yeah. And then I resigned. Okay. Yeah. It, it was just, uh, you know, <laughs> I could just see that I would, I would give up writing if I did that. The economic uncertainty of being a writer of the kind that I am uh, is makes you makes you. Uh, I mean, you know, it puts a <laughs> it puts a candle b- below you. You know, <laughs> you have to you have to keep writing. Yeah, and I like that. And I think uh, just seeing um, just seeing a paycheck coming in every month, um, I could just feel no, this is okay. Now I may as well just go on and retire. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we should talk about the the new book, Gun, sure. Gun Island, which I just uh, finished. It's so wonderful. And I have a whole list of questions I want to ask about it. So one of the things I I noticed about it, and I think any of your regular readers will notice, is how many, the continuity from your other mm. works. Some of the themes are the migration and travel around the Indian Ocean in centuries past, and as well as... Now, um, natural events, cyclones, and and, and things, um, which the intent was obviously, or not obviously, obviously to anyone who read The Great Derangement, there was an intent to make those natural or not-so-natural events more central. And the language, the, the, the use of language and different languages. And so there's so much that's familiar, but yet it's, it comes across as very different in a way that is understandable to those who read The Great Derangement. It, it seems that you are consciously set yourself a project to do something different. Uh, but I, what I'm wondering is how different the process needed to be. I mean, was this kind of conscious intent of um, sort of fighting against the constraints of the genre something that uh, required you to work differently? Do you see what I'm asking? Or... I, I didn't feel that I was writing within a genre at all this, uh, with this book. In fact, quite the opposite. And as you say, uh, you know, basically, in so many ways, uh, in, it's an extension of uh, all my interests and, and passions and, you know, like the ones you mentioned. But again, I, 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 at the end of it, I did feel that it's completely different from anything I've done before. And I suppose the difference is that in between I wrote uh, The Great Derangement. So, uh, you know, that in itself made me think think about things in a different way, especially how how one might work on, you know, how one needs to, as it were, rethink the whole question of fiction uh, in this time, you know. So, yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah, all those issues really fed into this book. What I meant to say about genre was not that you were working within a genre, but that you were fighting against it. I mean, in The Great Derangement, you wrote about how the novel, as it's traditionally conceived, doesn't uh, lend itself or doesn't leave room to extreme events in nature or, or, or wild, unexpected things happening that don't involve people or that people aren't the source of. Mm. And so... There you were pointing out the limitation of the genre, yeah. and here you're trying to overcome that limitation. Yeah. If I uh, uh, yes, in that sense you're completely right. Yes, yeah, yes, certainly. And and about the bringing back of 
characters. There's a couple from the Hungry Tide, Pia the scientist and um, Tipu the son of the the guy who's killed, yeah. uh, who, whose name now escapes me. But um, that also seemed new to me in the sense that, I mean, maybe I haven't read every single one of your books, but of course there's a trilogy which is intentionally, the yeah. Ibis trilogy, which is intentionally yeah. uh, consequential. But this one, I imagine you hadn't conceived at the time of the Hungry Tide yet. I mean, you hadn't planned it to be a series, or at least that's the way the sequence looks from how you <laughs> I, wrote it. And, and so I'm wondering if the bringing back the characters was a way to ground it. I mean, in, you know, since you're doing so many, so much new and different here. Um, I would say all of the above, actually, <laughs> because, you know, uh, once I realized that the book would start in the, in the Sundarbans, uh, it it just seemed it, it it would have been odd it would have been strange if it hadn't included some connection with the hungry tide yeah you know i mean that would have been a really weird thing yes i can so, see that yeah so in that way i felt i had to go back and uh, you know the, the character of pia was a very interesting character for me and at the end of the hungry tide you know she's still there yeah so you know I feel like I know Pia. I can write about her yeah. <laughs> for a long, long time. Well, she's somebody that scientists can identify with. I, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Although you probably weren't thinking of us as your main audience. Uh, no, I wasn't, but <laughs> I, I'm happy to have it. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to ask uh, more about the role of science in the book. The, there's a lot of science in it. Uh, of course, climate change, but not only that. There's a lot of natural phenomena that are discussed in ways that some of them are far outside my expertise, but they read quite convincing. I mean, you must have done research, and uh, I imagine a lot of it is uh, certainly the climate part all sounds right to me. It sort of comes in many ways, um, big and small. But But then at the same time, the other... Another central element of the book is myths. I mean, mythologies, stories that are clearly not meant to be interpreted as completely literally true, although the reader is sort of left to wonder about that in different ways at different times. But I'm wondering how you see the relationship between those things. I mean, the science and the myth. In other words, in the book, it's all there, you know, and... And so on the one hand, you're, there's a sort of a message about the world as it really is. And another, there's messages about the world as it is in stories. And you're connecting those. But, I mean, is the reader supposed to know what's real and what's not real? Or how do you think about the connection between those elements? I can't really say that I have, as it were, a sort of theory about it, which I can expound. But... I think actually what interests me more and more, and I'm sure it shows in the book, is actually what science cannot tell us. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, and really the more you think about it, the more you realize that there's so much that uh, science can't tell us. And Yes. And I do think also that, you know, the idea that uh, science is, and that nature is something called nature is entirely the domain of science. Uh, I don't, I don't really accept that. And I think I accept it even less now than I did before. I mean, within that world, there is something, uh, there is something in excess of what science can tell us, certainly right now. 
and uh, perhaps even within the future depending upon the um, upon the sorts of uh, the sorts of relationship uh, sorts of methods that science develops so uh, you know i find uh, i i think uh, as you know i have the greatest respect for science and scientists yes. and yes. I'm, I'm 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 deeply interested in it yes uh, but i think more and more that's the thing that really interests me is just this what can science not tell us yes you know and um, i think really in some way when we look at this whole issue of climate change and what surrounds us yeah that's what really comes to the fore what can it not tell us and um you know uh i i i i think in a way what has really perhaps gone uh, gone terribly wrong in the ways in which we approach as it were the the political issues are, uh, around climate change is exactly this that it's because it's the focus on science as it were has obscured so many other things yeah well i mean I felt a tension there because on the one hand it, that what you say comes across that you want to show what scientists science can't explain but at the same time science is also explaining a lot even in the book so I felt that as a as a tension you well you know science uh, let's uh, let's uh, I'll try and approach this systematically as it were different uh, different aspects of what you're saying look uh in in relation to climate change scientists are the messengers and they are very important messengers who are telling us that this is happening but they're not the only messengers farmers right. farmers are telling us uh, you know everybody who lives with ecosystems are telling you know have been telling us the same thing scientists have been making of course uh, you know bigger connections and that's that's very important yeah but everybody who actually anybody who has their eyes open Yeah. It can see what's happening. It Just not in much. some states of the US. Apparently, <laughs> but it, uh, I think that's partly uh, the result of the fact that people very few people actually live in connection uh, to the to ecosystems apart from farmers and fishermen who yeah. else does, you know? Right. And their numbers are vanishingly small in the U.S., you know, because of mechanization and so on. But certainly, you know, I, I, just recently I was in a small island in um, Indonesia, you know, yeah. Ternate. Uh-huh. Um, and everybody there was talking about it because they've seen, uh, really? you know, this is, the, the seasons are not as they used to be. The entire ecosystem has changed. Do you find the awareness in India is... is there as well because i had the had the perception in the past not so much or that people are not maybe the, maybe it's increasing uh, certainly i don't think in india you'll find anyone who'll dispute uh, not dispute but that the level of uh just the amount of discussion publicly has has been less it's what you privilege you know because uh, the public discourse in india is always dominated by Uh, a few cities and you know mm. a few people in a few cities mm. those people have very little awareness of what's going on but uh, if you go into the countryside uh, farmers everywhere will tell you that the that everything is changing it's not just farmers you know most of all it's indigenous peoples who've been noticing mm. you know the the profound changes that 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 have been occurring some of the earliest uh, mm. uh, messengers of this were really uh, you know indigenous peoples in siberia 
Yeah, where the changes are very large. Yeah, where the yeah. changes are very large. And they see it. I mean, they see the permafrost melt um, and all of that, you know. So, I mean, I think, you know, scientists are very important. They're messengers. I mean, but there are many other sorts of messengers as well. But we have to recognize that ultimately this problem is not a scientific problem. Yeah, It's no, a cultural right. problem. It's a social problem. Uh, American society has become, as it were, so sort of science fetishistic mm. that... You know, it's now almost assumed that uh, really this will be solved by sci- scientists and engineers. Really? It's, yeah, I mean, everywhere you can see Who it. assumes that? I think most scientists and engineers are assuming we're in big trouble. <laughs> most, <laughs> most scientists and engineers know that it can't be solved that way. But look at Elon Musk. I mean, he's the one who's quoted in the papers. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's, yeah that's a different... It's that yeah. kind of weird sort of, uh, weird right. kind of uh, techno-futurism, you know, that's, uh, that's out there. Which I think is actually really, really dangerous. Uh, and you can see what the ground is being cleared for. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, that uh, the Yale website. Uh, climate communication? Or, uh, yeah, they have a climate communication. Yeah. It's called 350 or something. I forget the exact um, okay. the Yale climate news or whatever. Yes. You can see they're steadily preparing the ground for geoengineering. Really? Uh, absolutely. I guess I don't read it enough. I, There's a normalization of geoengineering that is going on, and it comes from elite universities. I mean, that's what that, that, that you can see it happening in England. It's happening here. I mean, it's happening throughout the Anglosphere. The, the most elite institutions are preparing the ground for geoengineering. Well, it's okay. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. I'd be interested to hear more, more what you have to say about this. My, my perception of geoengineering is that originally most scientists said in the field said we shouldn't even study this because it's too uh it's such a bad idea but then some have been arguing well we maybe we shouldn't do it but we should at least study it because everything else is doesn't look like it's happening which many of us see as not a completely irrational argument i mean you can do modeling studies you can uh do some amount of research but i I've started to be partly persuaded by the argument that um, it, it's quite likely to happen, actually, because um, to do carbon mitigation, you have to have, uh, effectively, at the global scale, you have to have international agreement, which we're quite bad at, um, partly because the U.S. is not helping, but... Um, Whereas to do geoengineering, you need international agreement not to do it, in a sense, because any one country, even not such a rich country, can do it on its own, which is kind of frightening. A billionaire could do it. A billionaire could do it, yeah. I'm absolutely sure that. Yeah. See, so how do you feel about the issue of, of, of research? So see, uh, uh, the, uh, the, it's exactly as you say. Not I predict that within the next 10 years, what we're going to hear increasingly from the technocratic establishment is that there is no alternative. That's how they press neoliberalism on us. That's how they're going to right. do this. Right. And in re- relation to geoengineering, the one thing that we do know, I mean, it's like using uh, the medicine that caused the disease, uh, uh, you know, to try and, uh, as it were, cure the disease. Yeah, well, the um, a couple of economists... Um, uh, Gernot uh, Wagner and Martin Weitzman wrote a book where they argue, well, it's like chemotherapy. In other words, it's not the best thing would be to not get cancer. But once you have it, 
chemotherapy is better than nothing, even though it's pretty awful. So in other words, it's there's no really... Uh, I, I'm just trying to make the case here as a devil's advocate. I don't actually... I, I'm extremely uncomfortable and unhappy with the idea of geoengineering for all the reasons that every... you know that are hopefully obvious and probably your same reasons. But um, otherwise, I mean, even, even if we were to have a very ambitious plan of carbon emissions reduction now, we'd still f- see a bunch more global warming and we're not even doing that. So, well, so if we, so if you have two or three degrees on the ground and there's nothing you can do that's going to reverse it for centuries, except geoengineering, then what, then what becomes the, how do you see the debate then? Well, you know, this is an argument you can make today. It's an, it's the argument that's being pushed by, as I said, various kinds of uh, authorities who are basically trying to normalize geoengineering. Look, the problem is really, this is the fundamental problem. Where do we have limits on science, you know? And uh, it, we've created a world where no such limits can even be thought of. I think this whole, you know, this Mauna Lea um, observatory that's playing out in um, uh, Hawaii, it's Uh a very, I mean, that strikes me as very interesting, you know, because, um, you know, there are already so many observatories there. They want to build this 18-story observatory on what is, for for them, a sacred mountain. Oh, I don't know this story. Oh, well, you should look it up. Yes, I should. <laughs> uh, the indigenous peoples of Hawaii are, tr- are trying very hard to resist. And it's really, it's all the elders and so on. So on top of one of the mountains. Yeah, on top of one of the mountains. And of course, you know, within a settler colonial ideology. Yes. Um, you know, landscapes can never be sacred. Right. Because they're just to be used. Yes. I mean, can you imagine anyone proposing, say, building an observatory on, um, uh, let's say, Westminster Cathedral or St. Paul's Cathedral or whatever? Yeah, right. I mean, for that Western imagination, only the built can be sacred. Yeah. Whereas really for people everywhere else, uh, landscapes have always held a sacredness. Right. And really another observatory. Why? We know enough about just what's for astronomy you mean yeah just for astronomy yeah i mean the world being where it is at this moment is that a, 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 a useful way to spend money it just doesn't seem so to me but you know the the whole sort of science establishment is hev- really behind it wants to push it through yeah but with but with global warming i'm still struggling with the the ethical argument, I mean, because the choice isn't to intervene in the climate or not to intervene in it. The choice is which form of intervention bothers you the most or the least. Because if we don't do geoengineering, we've still done a lot of harm to the climate. So it's a question of, you know, I I, I, I totally agree with the argument that it's, you know, causing one environmental problem and then making another one to stop it is almost always a bad idea, right? The classical examples are the British introduced whatever pest it was into Australia, and then they introduce another one to eat that one, and it always gets worse. I mean, I completely... It's it's obviously going to go that way. Right. So the problem really is who gets to decide? Yeah, well, that's maybe that's the right way to frame it. Yeah. I mean, is it going to be the people of China and India? No. Uh, uh, it's going to be, you know, some some guy sitting in some posh university in the West. And in fact, uh, you know, one of the predicted results of many of these uh, possible geoengineering measures is going to be uh, changes in the patterns of the monsoons. Yeah, that's one of the likely. Yeah. Uh, well, but the, of course, the patterns of the monsoons are 
are already affected by um, uh, unintentional geoengineering due to, yeah. the, due to the aerosols that have been emitted. So, from. I mean, uh, th- that can't really be a <laughs> be an argument for intentional no, no, <laughs> geoengineering. No, 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 yeah. I, and I, I yeah, I, I'm with you. I just, I'm struggling with this one myself. Um, and I'm not, a t- but I'm not 100% sure. I mean, it might be somebody in a posture university in the West who decides to do it, but it might also be China or India. I don't know. I mean, I can imagine one scenario is some bad extreme event happens and, uh, and you know, enough heat, bad heat waves in India and India decides to do it, but then Pakistan decides that it's uh, doing something to the monsoon. You can imagine, these are the things that really scare me about climate change generally is starting wars and and things, which I think comes out in your book, actually. I mean, in the sense that global warming isn't portrayed as a so much as a force that you see doing harm in the book. It's sort of there in the background, pushing lots of people in different ways in concert with other forces of rapid change in the modern world. That's how the world really is, of course. Climate isn't this unique thing. There's a million things happening at the same time that are unfamiliar. But the worst human outcomes to me seem the ones that are kind of downstream of the immediate climate change. I think one thing that's very obvious, especially if you look at the Little Ice Age, this is why the Little Ice Age fascinates me, is that uh, human sensitivity to climate change uh, is much, much greater than we think. You know, um, I think, uh, you know, Our social systems, our political systems are much, much more fragile than we imagine. And already we can see this in the ways in which, uh, say, these refugee flows have completely destabilized uh, Europe and America. Who would have predicted this even 10 years ago? Yes. I mean, it's astonishing how profoundly the world has become destabilized, you know? Yeah. I think, uh, anyway, just to, just to back up what you're saying, I think long before we have ca- a climate catastrophe, we're going to have a global Armageddon. Yikes. I mean, one of the, you know, but about humans being sensitive to climate, but I think one of the aspects of that, that your, that Gun Island brings out is, um, the role of migration, which is what you're talking about. In other words, if, if some places where a lot of people live become uninhabitable, those places people have to go somewhere. And if our social and political systems are incapable of handling that in a humane way, then, then suddenly we're all, we're all sensitive. Is that, is that- I don't agree with you, actually. Okay. You know, if you go to uh, India or Bangladesh or any place that you see that you think to be exceptionally vulnerable to these things, you would see it's pretty much the same as here. People carry on and they don't really notice the other sort of macro level changes that are happening around them. Uh, I would argue on the contrary that uh, it's actually uh, systems which are, I mean, social and political systems that are extremely complex and that have, you know, a very tight sort of governing model, um, like Western Europe, like America, that are actually much, much more vulnerable to sudden shocks. You know, you can see this with 9-11, for example. You know, I mean, in in India, in most countries, uh, there have been massive terrorist attacks for years. 
but there's a certain flabbiness in the system which manages to absorb the shock here uh, you know it sent the entire system careening over so that uh, you know uh, for america uh, 911 became the date when it's modern when a certain a postmodern chapter in its history began yeah you know got into these wars got into this kind of wild um, sort of uh, stomping about so uh, i think uh, you know the uh, systems like the us system like uh, you know it's again you know i mean one should never of course go far uh, go too far back in history but if you think look at germany uh, post first world war you know yeah german society was so much so organized so modern so it had all these sorts of completely modern um, forms of welfare etc uh, uh and you know those shocks just set just set the society sort of uh, you know careening over and i think you know it's interesting mm. that if you look at um, if you look at the extraordinary political changes that have happened in europe and in uh, america these last 2 or 3 years yeah there's been no such change in uh, bangladesh right even though bangladesh is so low lying i mean on the whole uh, you know their economies are growing bangladesh the extraordinary thing about bangladesh is that even as this is going on it's a huge success story yeah in terms of its economic development and in terms of yeah. economic development yes. in terms of uh, you know life indicators yes so i i don't think i i really don't think uh, you know that it's uh, it's going to work out as simply as you as you might imagine well i guess i mean i i don't i don't think i disagree with anything you said there it's i mean and certainly the fragility of the us political system and how awfully it's gone off the rails um i've no debate there <laughs> whatsoever uh i don't think we can blame that on climate i think that's its own thing but but it's precisely the interaction of that with with uh the non-human world if you if yeah. you will that's that's the issue so i guess all I, i mean in the book you have places who you have peak characters who are leaving their homes in part because of a climate disruption and so if you have many many of those people going to places which for their own dysfunctional reasons um are easily upset um by migrants coming in as as the US seems to be now um and and Europe then it's that combination of things it's i mean as as you guys often say uh, climate is uh, the force multiplier yeah right. it's in the background it's i mean it's it's right. inescapable yeah everything that's happening see for example in america i think one of the one of the things that's really now omnipresent in america and this is not just to do with climate it's also to do with you know global changes of different sorts is a sense amongst the young that their lives will not have the same horizons as their parents lives yeah i think that's that's right now it's uh, all pervasive i mean i see it with my children i see it with their friends yes. they have a very powerful sense of that and you can see it uh, you know i mean wherever you go a sense of dwindling lives which is very hard for people to accept after yeah. generations of constant expansion yeah you it's, know it's 
It's very challenging for us parents. It is. It is. It's very challenging. And as you can see, uh, you know, one can say um, that, uh, you know, climate is a very important aspect of that. It may not always be in the forefront. People may not talk about it, but they can see, they can feel it. You know, there's yeah. a deep uncertainty. There's a, this is a time of uncertainty like no one has ever seen. So even though, even the deniers, yeah. you know, they, we can all sense the crisis around us, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, and there's other crises, crises besides climate. I mean, one thing, another one that is sometimes terrifying to me is the advances in computing, artificial intelligence and, you know, I was talking with somebody once uh, in the last year or two about climate projections. This is a very knowledgeable person who works on economics and climate change. Um, and we were talking about the problem that um, climate scientists have, a, have a, a history in the IPCC reports in particular of making graphs that go to 2100. And so I was talking to this person about it and he said, uh, well, by 2100, we might all just be uploaded to Facebook anyway. And that didn't seem like such a, I mean, it was a joke, but it didn't seem like such a crazy thing. That's not a, a a fear that comes up immediately in Gun Island. But but one thing I did notice was it, it's there a little bit because maybe you didn't consciously mean it to put it there. But, but the phones, the phones and the devices are very present in a way that, um, you know, you read it in 2019 and it really reads like 2019 because the devices are exactly as they are. You know, you didn't give the brand names, but other than that. Well, and I wonder how much you thought about that one as being connected to the other uh, absolutely. scary See, trends. Uh, you're talking about, um, uh, you, you mentioned uh, climate refugees from Bangladesh. And, uh, you know, I think for me, that was one of the real revelatory aspects of this, of writing this book. Because, uh, you know, while I was writing it and before, I started doing research on migrants in uh, Italy. Yeah. You know, so I spent a lot of time interviewing migrants uh, in various camps, migrants, refugees. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's very striking to me that uh, usually the, what you read about migrants is almost always written by Westerners. Yeah. And usually by Westerners who don't know the languages. Yeah. You know, whereas I do happen to know the languages. Yes. And I can speak to them. And I, you get a completely different picture. And I think this is where the picture is really different. Because I do know that many of your climate scientist uh, colleagues think there's a direct and easy correlation between, uh, um, you know, climate, between migration and climate and yes. refugees and climate. And of course, sometimes there is. I mean, like if your island sinks, you become a refugee. I mean, yes. you know, that, that's, that's, right. that's simple. But actually, the really striking thing is that not a single migrant I met was willing to call themselves a climate migrant. You tried to get them to say it? You know, <laughs> many of them, are, most of them were Bangladeshis. And Bangladeshis, as you know, are very well informed about climate issues. Yeah. Many of them actually described events uh, which had to do completely uh, with climate, you know. Un uncertain weather, a lot of them had been farmers, but not a single one of them was willing to say that they were climate refugees. And I'll tell you why, because actually, uh, this AI that you're talking about is actually what is behind this phenomenon. The phenomenon of, of migration. Of migration. How so? Oh, because they're seeing the world outside, yes. It's partly that, but it's also, uh, it's also that every stage of their movement 
yeah. is, is enabled by the cell phone. Right. You know, you uh, uh, if you just Google uh, refugee right now, yeah. every single picture you'll see uh, has a cell phone in it. And yeah. that's not an accident. Yeah. This is the technology that's driving this. Yeah. You know, it's the technology that is behind this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know so it's so extraordinary there's a there's a there's a video clip of president trump somewhere saying um uh how come these refugees uh, have cell phones yeah you know i mean why should they have cell phones they're meant to be uh, poor refugees yeah. in denmark they started actually uh, confiscating refugees cell phones really? because they thought that refugees shouldn't have cell phones so this goes to show how much people uh, misunderstand this process because this entire thing is cell phones are not extrinsic to it yeah cell phones are what make it possible yeah and i, I read somewhere i can't remember where that somebody pointed out that that it's hard to understand from here in the in the west because most people who have a cell phone here started by having a computer and then it got miniaturized to the miniaturized to the phone but in in uh in Bangladesh or in India, that most people with a cell phone went straight to the cell phone. I mean, it's a, it entered people's lives in a different way. Do you Completely. think that's true? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And there are two very important things to remember there. One is that cell phone use and social media reach is much greater in India, Bangladesh, parts of Africa than in America. Yeah. You mean it, you mean reach in terms of the fraction of people that are yeah connected. I that mean, way. there are now uh, almost twice. Uh, no, there's one and a half times as many cell phones as people in India. Yeah, and uh, the figures, that, uh, the network penetration in Bangladesh is much greater than in, than than in India, much greater than in the U.S. Yeah. You know, as you must know, third world people when they come to the U.S., the first thing they say is how bad the net is. I have better. <laughs> I have. I have a quicker uh, uh, internet in uh, Goa, in a village, than yeah. I do here, and we get the best. Uh, so uh, you know, uh, this is the extraordinary thing. People don't seem to understand this. That in fact, these technologies are working much more powerfully in Africa, in India, in Latin America than they actually are in developed countries. It's that same effect. It's the first, what do they call it? The old infrastructure effect. Yeah, like uh, legacy or something. Yeah, something like that. The, uh, so this is very important. The second thing is, you know, we know now that this technology interferes with our neurological systems. Yeah, it's the scary part. We I know that. I feel hyper-conscious of that every day as I addictively look at my phone. Yeah, it's so uh, it is. hard to fight. But see... Usually, when we talk about the neurological interferences, uh, we are thinking about um, you know rich kids in California or in um, or in yeah. Japan or something. Yeah. But I am absolutely sure that the neurological interference is much greater actually amongst poor kids uh. in distant parts of the world. You just imagine if you're a, if you're a kid in Bangladesh. Uh, your father's a rice farmer. Most of the day you're standing in mud, you're planting a rice. Yeah. But your family has a cell phone which they charge with, um, you know, solar power or whatever. Right. Uh, the relationship between you and the cell phone is of a completely different order. Yeah. And that's what struck me so much with many of these migrants. You know, yeah. 
there was a real sense amongst, uh, I really had a sense amongst many of them that uh, it's altered their neurological patterns. For example, I would ask them, uh, you know, weren't you afraid uh, to take that boat? You yeah. know, when you can see that it's a kind of rickety boat that's likely to sink. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really this, <laughs> what they call the selfie death phenomenon. You think, <laughs> right. Hey guys, look at this. <laughs> yeah, it's this it's it's this phenomenon where you think that you're because you have a phone in your hands, yeah. the real world doesn't really impinge on you. Yeah. You know, um it's a so what I would say is that you know again, as with all of this climate is in the background. Yeah. But this movement of people that you're seeing is actually a uh, one aspect of the acceleration yeah. that we that we are seeing everywhere in our lives you know yeah. you know one one migrant said to me he said you know they keep talking about uh, shutting down migration yeah and he said you can do it immediately you can do it Im- instantly just shut down the internet <laughs> i would shut down a lot of other things besides migration you see that's the thing and once you realize that you realize that you can't shut the internet right we are not in control no. Already, it controls us. Yes, right. It's a... Uh, yeah. Human agency doesn't exist in the same way anymore. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of sci-fi movies about this. Uh, we know... You know the Matrix yeah. uh, 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 comes to mind. But. but it's actually happened. I mean, the machines have taken over. Yeah. No, it's hard to argue. But I mean, you you talk about the how the in the West we don't understand the role that the cell phone plays in other parts of the world. So, is there any? I mean, is there any prediction we can make based on that? I mean, is there some something coming that we're not seeing because we don't appreciate this? Or? It's not just the cell phone, you know. It's what the cell phone enables, like social media. Yeah, I think social media has been a force of disruption at a um, at a level that we haven't even begun to understand. No, well, yeah, you know? it gave us this. Gave us Trump. Didn't it? Gave, it gave us Trump. It's given us this whole wave of um, a certain kind of populist authoritarianism, but it also creates. You know, these strange sorts of fantasy lives, yeah. which are actually something very old. Yeah. Uh, you know, like these uh, witchcraft-like uh, attacks upon people. Uh, in India, as you probably have heard, I mean, you know, WhatsApp has enabled all these murders. Oh, my gosh. And social hysteria, all yeah. kinds of violence. Well, here too, I mean, every every mob of any kind now is yeah. using social media I, I i don't know do you use it i mean i, I struggle with it a lot i i was on uh i'm on twitter but i don't tweet much because i just can't i feel that to do it i admire people who do it well but it it takes huge effort and it's just so easy to get sucked into ugly battles that have no point except to make everyone miserable and even facebook which to me has been um, in the past, I really appreciated it. Kept me in touch with relatives and friends that I wouldn't have been in touch with otherwise. But at some point, you—it's hard to use it right. You get sucked in, and you end up kind of addicted to it, and 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 seeing the world in a kind of distorted way. And I found myself backing off from it, even though it comes at a cost, because I miss 
I miss what I've, you know, the good part of it. Well, I'm not on Facebook, but I am on Twitter. Uh, and uh, I think that's something that I r realize every day that this is a very dangerous space and you have to be really careful. Yeah. But, um, you know, what is, what's been very useful about Twitter is that information flows. You know, I get lots of information from yeah, it. No, I follow the scientists. I mean, that's what keeps me in touch with what's happening in various parts of the world. So I, I retweet. I find that's a useful way of passing on information. But uh, I think one does have to be uh, very, very careful with social media. Yeah. I guess one thing I'm curious about, this is this is also coming from a personal place where I feel I could use help but so I'm curious how you deal with this now that you've you're writing about climate which I would say it's at least two books yeah I think it comes up in some of the earlier ones actually but in subtler ways but at least two books now so you do a lot of speaking about it and um, I, I imagine people must ask you what should I do what should I do in uh, to help you know what, what can I do about this problem does that happen do you have answers for them? Um, yes, it does happen. People ask me and I always tell them that I'm not the right person to answer that question. You should <laughs> ask an activist or you should yeah. ask, uh, you should ask, you know, a technology guy who can tell you what you should get and so on. Uh, but, you know, fundamentally, I think um, the really dangerous things that we are heading towards are not within are not coming going to come at us from the atmosphere are they going to come at us from other human beings sure yeah but it's all part of the same yeah thing that's right and that's absolutely. the challenging thing absolutely it's a yeah it's a it's this sort of intertwined series of feedback loops you know yeah and i'm i think this is related to the issue of science and stories i mean so you're making the case through multiple books now that stories that we consume should deal with with climate, with the non-human world. Um, I mean, I, I and many others, I think, find that completely compelling. And um, But also from the other side, I mean, science itself has stories in it. I mean, even the daily practice of science is about, we often don't put it this way, but even a scientific paper is a story. It's a story meant for other scientists, mainly. But uh, I'm just kind of, but, but in terms of how we tell the story publicly, we've, we've said how we're not good at it and we're not, um, we're not the only ones who should be doing it. We're not, uh, we don't know how to structure the, Story. So you hear scientists saying, uh, well, we need writers and artists to help us do it. You hear that now. It's a, recently we need movies about climate, which is all fine. But I'm still spending a lot of time thinking about the relationship between these things. You know, the stories that are in science, the science that's in stories, and, this, and the ones that are in between, and, and how, uh, how to say what the the story is here, what's happening to the planet. I mean, you're grappling with this in very, 
visible way. But I wonder, I, I'm just looking, maybe I'm just looking for advice. <laughs> what, should, what should scientists be doing? I think you're right that scientists now do have the sense that they have to be, that others also have to tell these stories and so on. But I think when that actually happens, uh, it makes them often quite uncomfortable. I mean, uh, look at what happened with uh, David Wallace Wells's uh, article and then book. Yeah, well... He, well, that's interesting. I mean, he uh, he got a lot of flack from some scientists when the article came out. Um, I think a lot of us thought it was fine. I mean, I, I wasn't too bothered by what he wrote. But yeah, he got some public... Uh, there, is, there is a perception that we don't want to be pushing doom and gloom. We don't. We want to be very quick to show that we're not overstating the case. We're very concerned historically about not overstating the case in a way that I think now appears misplaced, a concern that now appears misplaced to many of us. See, this is one of the problems, isn't it? I mean, we are talking about the limits of science. And one of those limits is just this, that uh, one of the limits should be this, that scientists, uh, because they've been the messengers, uh, feel that it's their story. And they have a right to decide how it should be told. Yeah. And they really don't. It's yeah. not their story. In fact, you know, one of the things that's, um, I've talked about this with a few people now. I'm curious what your reaction is to it. The last couple of years, to me, and I don't think I'm alone in this, in reading the news about climate, um, the last couple of years have been really uh, kind of striking and a little bit unsettling in a, ver- in a couple of ways that are that are different but maybe related. One, of course, is Trump got elected, and that was just so disturbing in the United States to many of us, just because we thought, like, you know, any any pretense of a rational government response to this problem was, you know, was was dashed. But the other thing is, you know, the pro the youth, the kids protesting, and the and the new activism on the left, which maybe in part is a response to Trump and those like him in other countries, which I think. Many climate scientists support this and think it's wonderful. I, I do. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm struck by how much it surprised me. Because if you would read what scientists have been saying for a long time, been, there's sort of been the expression of why aren't people protesting? You know, Why isn't it a bigger deal? Why is the world not listening? And then the world does listen. And we're, I, I found myself surprised and surprised that I'm surprised. In other words it's made me realize how clinically I viewed the problem. And even though if you would have asked me, I would have said it's a huge problem and we should all be more concerned. But when you see actually people being concerned, that's been uh, surprising and somewhat shocking in a a way that's positive, generally speaking. But but uh, look, I mean, as we all know, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened in the history of our species. People are going to talk about it. And they're going to talk about it in a thousand ways. Yeah. In a thousand different ways. No one can control it. Yeah. Certainly not someone who cites some social scientific study saying you, should, you need to yeah. talk about it in this way or that yeah, way. Yeah. That's, that, that just can't be. What, what, but what I'm saying is the awareness that that's true intellectually has been around for longer than you've actually seen it happening. Yeah. And now that you see it happening, it's, it's surprising even to those who said it should happen. <laughs> yeah. And I include myself in that. Have you had that sense at all? or, or, or? No, no. Uh, <laughs> you think I, it's not all? at all. I think it's, um, 
I feel completely uh, positive about it. I I think um, what these kids are doing is just fantastic and uh, you know uh I think they're wonderful. Well, I I feel positive too. I just mean that I've found it surprising. I've I've I found myself surprised by it in a way that intellectually I can't justify. You see what I'm saying? Mm. It's like we've been wondering why people didn't protest and then when they protest it's it's I guess just because it hadn't happened before. It's 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 uh it's changed my own the way I view the problem in some sense to to see it become real in the in the at least a large fraction of the public. I, yeah, I'm, no, I'm uh, I I don't find it uh, I find it completely unsurprising, and uh, you know, um, I really. I really hope that something comes of it. You know, for me, I think uh, I think we have a duty to hope. Yeah, you know, there's a big debate. Uh, uh, you probably read the climate Twitter and see people debating over hope versus fear versus yeah uh, doom. I don't know that I find this a constructive. It's debate because humans have all the emotions and you can't choose one over the other in any yeah. sort of controlled way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Okay. I, I, I just want to ask one more, which is just about the book and not about anything else. I, I hope this isn't, um, it's, there's so much language in it. Uh, and that's obviously a big part of it. So it's a very literary, uh, book, but I also saw it as a movie. Do you see it as a movie? <laughs> It's there's so many there's so much visual there's so much setting and visual drama and especially the end which I won't say anything more about but the end struck me as just I could just see the movie is is that something you think about thought about at all is I, I haven't thought about it but many people have said the same thing to me so about this one in particular more than yeah me. so <laughs> let's see <laughs> okay all right. Well, thanks so much, Amitabh. My thanks pleasure. For talking My to pleasure. Me. It was good to talk to you. Thank you, and thank you for doing this. Okay, we'll see how it, we'll see how uh, how it goes. But it, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. By the way, did. Okay, I hope Gun Island will be a movie sometime soon. But in the meantime, you can read the book, and I hope that interview made you more interested in doing that. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>